folks, it's Shane Getson here. I am the MLA for Laxinan Parkland. Uh, I love to call it God's country, also the chief government whip uh, in the office where I get to work at the Legislative Assembly and also Parliamentary Secretary for Economic Corridor Development reporting to the Premier. But moreover, I'm just a farm kid who got into politics, won a, uh, a, a popularity contest a while back and got elected for a second term. What we're doing is what matters to you. Uh, it's going to be a weekly podcast as much as possible that we can do and get it on a weekly basis for you to give you updates of what's happening in the ledge, uh, interview certain constituents or people from across this great province of Alberta, talk about things that, that are local, local content impacts that we're doing, uh, any stories or anything that you're interested in. And also we're always looking for more guests. So if you've happened in your travels to stumble across somebody who's really interesting, that has a great background story, that is uh, the unsung hero of the province, we would love to hear from them. So I got a couple things. Uh, firstly, Remembrance Day, as you can tell by the poppy I'm wearing on my chest here, uh, we'll have a number of, of Remembrance Day ceremonies out there. Now, back in the day when I was a kid, you know, Korea War was something in the past. We had uh, World War II, obviously, and World War I. That's where, you know, those most recent wars had taken place. Unfortunately, um, you know, with global political events and geo events we have going on, there's near and present danger taking place right now. So to put this in context, I mean, we had Afghanistan. A lot of our veterans now are younger than I am. Um, if you see one of our members in the armed forces, uh, past or present, the least you can do is to put a poppy on your chest, uh, to wear that proudly to remember them. And also when you see the legionnaires out there with these, don't be stingy with your cash. Throw in a couple bucks in the pot. This is how they raise money to keep those legions going. And one of the things that the legions do, especially in rural Alberta, is that they bring a lot of comrades together. And let's, let's those folks from that background to, uh, to have a safe place to go to, to share it. And in our areas, they're literally the glue of the area that holds it together. So with Remembrance Day, for all those that serve, still serve, um, our utmost thanks. Now, I was recently on a trip over to Germany and um, the events unfolding over the Middle East and specifically with, with Israel. First time I'd been to Berlin and we're landing there on October 8th. It was uh, the October 7th is when the events took place with Hamas, uh, came over and committed an absolute atrocities. And being over in Germany to see the issues that were taking place in the not so far Middle East was very profound. When you visit a um, Holocaust site, or you go to the topography of terror, or you're reaching out and touching the Berlin Wall, all of this stuff becomes very, very real. So, yeah, this, this Remembrance Day is something a little bit different. We're starting to see ripples of the past come to the present. And there's a saying out there, if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it understand your history, understand the things that lead up to those events so that we can all work together to make sure that that never happens again. And when we see it starting to happen, it behooves us not to step up and stand up and say something. Um, no act of terror should ever be supported, especially in this country. Uh, the bills that we have in the house this week, so I've been told some by some friends that um, they don't really know what the heck we're up to over in the house, and rightly so. It, uh, we put legislation out, we table it, and we do all those great things. And there's even a thing called Assembly Online. So if you want to see what's happening in the House, you can literally type it in, go to the Alberta Assembly. It'll show you what bills are on the order papers, what recent bills have been passed, 
It'll uh, give you links to watch the Assembly TV online if you prefer TV or if you want to be on the internet, you can check up on it. You can literally dial into the committee rooms. So there's a number of standing committees that we're firing up here again now that we're back in session. Uh, and all of those positions in the standing committees are very interesting because they're non, well, they are somewhat partisan, but not. So when we're in those committees, you have equal representation uh, for the most part of uh, what is elected in the House. So if you have a majority government, then you'll have a majority committee, but the numbers are really tight, you know, regardless of, of uh, you know, the swings on either side of the board in the electoral cycle. So that's really cool to zoom in and take a look at there. I'm chairing three of those committees. Uh, we've got about six or seven in total. Uh, that's where some of that work takes place. And again, you have both parties working uh, collectively to do that. It gets really exciting during estimate time. So when folks are talking about the new estimate rolling out, each one of those committees then looks at the budget and then grills those departments to see where they're coming up with their numbers, what their mandates, if they're committed and meeting their mandates, if they're going over or under budget, what their performances are. So that's always interesting. Um, one of the other things here, so I kind of rattled off my roll quick, and this isn't meant to be too political, but it's a little bit more political than most um, of our What Matters to You items, just because we had so many questions on the political side. So what does a whip do? So I'm the chief government whip. So I even had a friend of mine looking it up and going, well, what the heck is this? There's no real definition. Well, I, I don't know if that's by hook or by crook, but the tradition uh, came about in the Westminster system that you had someone from the, the caucus that literally tried to herd the rest of the politicians, herded the cats to make sure they were there to vote uh, when they needed to vote. And then also sometimes, uh, depending on your party, to vote a certain way. Um, that's kind of what the role is. But moreover, I've had people in the military, once they've heard the, the role, the way it's laid out, the way the Premier and I decided that, that my role would play, that it's more along the lines of a, a sergeant major, or I kind of put it in the vernacular of a project site, it would be a site superintendent. So that's kind of the role that it takes place. You organize the work, you help uh, with the execution plan, and then when you're in the house, you're executing towards it. The other thing that we act as uh, with the, the caucus whip becomes all the, the caucus side of it itself. So all the elected members, the budget comes over to caucus as well. It's allocated for us. So the communications that we have, the, the company message, if you would, that comes from the caucus member, the, the private members, comes up through those departments. And the, the whip is responsible for the private members as well. Uh, we're also kind of that person that the caucus calls out to when they need help with things or if there's any challenges. We work through that as well. And again, that's kind of the role there as well. Uh, I kind of put it or was put to me before as well that, you know, part of my role is to protect from threats, both foreign and domestic when it comes to the political side and also our team. I'm also uh, assigned to our political party. So I'm one of the two designates at the provincial level on our actual political party. So a non-voting director on that as well. So that's kind of what we're up to on the whip side, working with communications, working with the other government house leaders to make sure that when we're in session and when uh, we're in there working, that everyone's working, pulling the same way and, and pulling their weight. So that's kind of what a whip does. Uh, I talked about this trip that I went to Germany and uh, it was a business trip. So there's a few things that, that I belong to as well. And there's a really interesting part. There's, there's nonpartisan ones, obviously, and there's also other organizations from the States that have uh, you know, been formed over the years and the Canadian uh, parliamentarians have been invited to those as well. And I belong to the Pacific Northwest Economic Region, so I was assigned as Alberta's rep representative to that. And another one, which is the Conference of State Governors. 
uh, governments, I should say, and they were formed, interestingly enough, uh, about 80 some odd years ago when the U.S. states uh, got together themselves and said, hey, um, their federal government is having overreach. Sound familiar? So when the federal government was having overreach, these state governments decided to get together and to uh, talk about things that matter to all the states. So to make sure that they were uniformed and could hash it out at that state level. Uh, and lo and behold, um, about 20 some odd years ago, they reached out across the border, the 49th parallel and said, hey, are any of you provincial guys interested in doing this? So now we've actually belong, we belong to CSG Midwest, so the Midwest states. We have uh, membership on the east and also the west and also at the national level. So through CSG Midwest, I'm the Alberta designate on the environment and the energy file. Through that group and organization, back in the day when World War II was fresh in everyone's mind, there was a group called the, the Transatlantic uh, Group or the Transatlantic Bridge. Under the Transatlantic Bridge that was signed after World War II was to make sure that the, the West and, and uh, some North America and Europe didn't get cross-threaded again and they kept this continuity going back and forth between legislations and, and for elected and also for business purposes as well to make sure that we wouldn't have to fight another war over in Europe. It was one of the mechanisms and tools that were in place. So um, part of the Marshall Plan was part of that as well. So through that, the Transatlantic Bridge on Climate Change and Energy reached across to the Midwest Group through the Energy Group and invited us to go over and take a look at their energy transition file. So it was myself, uh, another member, uh, we were lucky enough that uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan weren't able to send one of their legislators and um, another Alberta guy joined me, MLA Roswell, out of uh, that Lloyd Minster country down there. Him and there was a lady from Ottawa, or I'm sorry, Ontario, uh, that went down there, one of their members of the, the Legislative Assembly, an MPP is what they call him. And we went representing Canada and there was a number of senators and representatives from the US. So we went over to Germany to see what they're up to. So they are full on in a transition over there. Um, what they're looking at doing is, is trying to go fully green. Uh, their concern was which was taking place after their dependency in a lot of uh, foreign products, predominantly uh, their dependency on, on Russian gas and energy to do that. They're looking at uh, trying to transition full green. They're still burning coal uh, and they also are unable or, or unwilling, I should say, they've made a decision, a cognizant decision to not utilize nuclear energy. So they're nowhere near getting their goals yet, but they're well on that path. Now, what I found interesting is that um, their definitions and why they're doing these things aren't the same reason why we would have to over here. And what we took away from that was that there's still lots of uncertainty, but there's a role for Alberta uh, to play in that. And there's also a role for North America to work together on to come up with what our definitions of what clean is, what's acceptable to us. Because again, when I'm looking at a country like Germany that's uh, 85 million people, uh, that's half the size of our province, and they don't have the resources that we have, their transition is for a bit of a different reason. It's not just for climate reasons. It's not just what they're doing there. They're doing it because they don't have the resources we do and want to make sure they're never basically caught in the same position again. The windfall of that is they're going to have a, a greener solution. In Alberta here, um, going over there on that trip was really interesting because I got to look at the German uh, hydrogen plan and we got to see some of their energy transition files. I was really happy and excited to see that our hydrogen roadmap was actually ahead of what Germany was doing in that regard. 
Now we're going to have a lot of technical issues that we'll have to figure out together. There's a lot of things that we can work together on in that. Also our environmental plan was ahead of them. The fact that we had also phased out coal as an example way ahead of them. There's a number of things that we're doing that we're far leaning forward on the green file. And the fact that we've been pricing carbon for a number of years through our, our industries for about you know 20 some odd years already. What they hadn't done at this point over there was put in that uh, that consumer carbon tax. And when we started looking at the economics of it, obviously we can see the ramifications now. So that doesn't make sense. But as far as the technical issues, uh, looking at how we can potentially supply them uh, really good clean gas, how we can get them hydrogen, uh, how we can work together on, on bridging some of their transition items in the next 10 to 15 years, uh, very salient. And then looking at some of their heavy industries are, are really good. And then we also found, uh, ironically, our cousins, I believe, over in Germany. So the Alberta of Germany uh, is a state called North Rhine-Westphalia. They call themselves the heartbeat of Europe. They are literally the heartbeat where the industry takes place, the tech, the innovation. They're uh, very much wired the same we are, kind of, you know, see the problem, overcome it, make it happen type folks. So what I would love to be able to do is to continue that relationship, uh, to be able to bridge some of these technical items, match up and marry our universities if we could in that regard. Uh, where we have you know a couple big universities they have 60 of them where we have a couple of really good technical colleges they have about 116 of them uh, and again they're the ones that are dealing with the energy file and also the tech very good like-minded folks so i can't wait to follow up with that and then recently found out that uh, an mou was signed with um, british columbia already so we already have a template that alberta could follow pacific northwest economic region so there's another organization that Alberta was actually a founding member of, which was really cool. And uh, it comprises of the Pacific Northwest. So you have Alaska, you have Northwest Territories, Yukon, British Columbia, Washington, uh, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan are all part of that uh, great region. We're going to be having a conference coming up here on the 15th. It's out in Regina. It's a, a mid-step, I guess you would, or, or an executive meeting. There's going to be around 200 participants there open up to the general public as well so they can come uh, see what we're up to and talk about different strategies and economic drivers within the Pacific Northwest economic region so we can work together. I'm very fortunate now that we're having a two-hour conference basically on the topic of economic corridors. So anyone who's been following that construct, that's something I've been talking about for a number of years, we're literally gluing it together. We have the Memorandum of Understanding signed between the Prairie Provinces at the last uh, conference I was at, I started pitching this pretty hard. There's lots of traction in this area now because folks are trying to get jobs done quicker so we can tie up our supply chain so we're not so dependent on, on um, foreign nationals to supply a lot of our cr critical elements and, and the items that we need. And it's also a way of making sure that we have uh, really good growth for the next 50, 60, 70 years. So I'll be sitting on a panel up there pitching the idea. We've got a gentleman that's coming out of Texas. He's from ports to plains. He's going to be talking about from the U.S. side getting up to the Canadian borders and also in the Midwest. We have our partners in Alaska are going to be presenting on this, as well as the Yukon and the territories. And we'll have some uh, local First Nation uh, chiefs as well. Uh, so former, former Treaty 6 Grand Chief uh, Leonard Standing on the road and Chief uh, Isaac uh, from Treaty 8. He'll be out there with us as well. So really looking forward to that and waving the flag and talking about all the good things we're up to there. Had an opportunity to go to an event that hadn't been held uh, since 2018. And it was a, a gathering of the consulate course. So it all took place down in McDougall Center. Um, 
week and change ago now at this point, I guess. And what it was was literally all the consulate corps that deal with, with Alberta. So some of their ambassadors and their, their consulate generals. Uh, it was like sitting in the United Nations. It was pretty neat, actually. And uh, what we had was three or six different ministers presented on the files in Alberta, plus the premier, and then we had a question and answer period. It was followed up by some uh, conversations and networking, obviously. We also had a presentation by uh, our chief economist from Alberta, literally laying out the roadmap, talking about the economic futures, some of the drivers that were taking place. The resounding thing that came out of that room was the world wants to work with Alberta. They like what we have. There were some very salient questions on the um, reason for the pause of the, uh, of the green file, what we're doing with the electric, uh, electric file, uh, how the environment is working, uh, food security was a big item, talking about fresh water supply, and of course the energy file as well. So one of the items that everyone was very encouraged by is when we articulated the reason for the pause on the renewables isn't to get rid of renewables, it's really to make sure that we're doing it in an integrated fashion that's planned out. So being over in Germany and seeing what they did, they're doing the exact same thing that Alberta's doing in this regard. Even though they're going to go to 2% of their land base, they're going to make sure now that the new growth potentials that they have are in corridors. Now, does this sound familiar? So the idea that we're looking at is also an environmental or economic corridors. That would be my pitch to my folks out there is to make sure that when we're putting up the windmills and when we're putting up the solar panels, etc., that it's in a controlled fashion. It's not going to be sterilizing farmland. You're going to make sure that the ability to have these uh, assets are closer to the grid, physically closer to the grid than what we have now, because you cannot take away all the other energy that we have and you can't keep building back, building these transmission power lines. So that's going to be taken in consideration. If there's going to be a little bit more um, of a, of a broad scope looking at what's taking place in those files. So that's why the pause in a former industry, there is nothing wrong with taking a pause when you're in the middle of a project to get it right. The worst thing you can do is keep going forward and make a big mess that you can't clean up. So we're taking the pause for the right reasons and industry is responding really well to that because they know going forward that there's also certainty as well. It's no longer the wild west when it comes to renewables. But the interesting thing is when um, you hear some of the rhetoric out there, they're all going to pick up and pack up and go away. That is simply not the case in Alberta. Alberta accounted for 80% of the investment in renewables. So say that again, in Canada, Alberta accounted for 80% of the investment in renewables. So we are a big player in the space and we want to make sure that we get it right for all the right reasons so we can integrate it into our system. Uh, Alberta pension plan town halls. So to get ahead of this, I had a lot of the, the seniors' homes, they reached out to me as well. I had a lot of folks through our office reach out and obviously on social media too. So what we're having is a what matters to you town halls. They'll be coming up. We're going to have a hybrid model so we can reach as many folks as possible. We'll go through uh, what has transpired, um, what predicated us having the, the conversation around this. We're going to talk about the reports that have been put out there for folks to consume to literally look at what the numbers are and then we'll talk about where we're at now so some of the mechanics so not to be a spoiler alert you still should show up at the town hall uh, register to do that so we know the capacity that we have there as well and if you have a bunch of questions then at least we can make sure we get your questions answered and then we'll be doing q a from the floor as well and, and probably taking some online as well but the long and the short of it i'll give you the coles notes version Back in the day, we did this thing called the Fair Deal Panel. The Fair Deal Panel went across the province, spoke to over 60,000 Albertans. 
One of the items in the deliverables that came out of that was the Alberta Pension Plan. And coincidentally, another thing came out of that was the economic corridors. So hence the, the fall in with that. So we started executing a bunch of these items. What we looked at was the numbers at the time with the pension plan of where we were at. Uh, we took a pause on that because we wanted the most current, most relevant numbers. Those numbers were put into place. There was a report, third party group that was spooled up. That just happened, and it's not by happenstance, but it just happened in that case that the report wasn't finished until after the election. There was no smoke and mirrors here. There was no tomfoolery. It's literally looking at the numbers and the cutoff periods, having all the accounting information in, in line. When that was finally provided by the funds and by, the, by the, the, the feds as well, that's where it took place, third party groups doing this report. We get through the election cycle, the report's finally finished. We take a look at it and we released it to the public. So that is the actuary numbers that were performed. You take the contract that we signed back in 1966, essentially the accounting folks get at it. They go through the contract terms. They look at what's in the fund. They look at the terms and conditions of it, and they come up with a number that is sort of static at that point in time. Now you have to understand that the pension fund itself is live. It's dynamic. You have cash going in and you have people drawing out. So those might vary depending on economic regions and everything else. And without getting into too many of the numbers, what we found was Alberta, um, being a small portion by population, you know, 16-ish type percent or whatever, uh, look at the numbers, was well over 50%. So owned more than half of the pie of, of that by a small margin of percentage of the actual participants. So a lot of folks are going, well, how can that be? That's funny money, it's funny math, everything else. Well, actually not. When you look at our population in our province and what we do, we're kind of the outlier in the country. We've got high paying jobs, a younger population, uh, and we had a very booming economy for a number of times. So again, uh, when you look at the main contributors to the country, it's Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia, Saskatchewan too, but when you look at the numbers, Alberta and Ontario at that time were heavily contributing. Alberta has you know, fraction of the population of Ontario, but we still contribute not too far behind them, like it's, it's orders of magnitude. So that makes a lot of sense when you look at it. And when you look at the growth curve that came through from the 80s and everything took off in the economy, that's where we're at. And we've got a young population. So we don't have as many gray hairs pulling out of the darn thing at the back end while we still have high paying jobs contributing, pouring in the bucket in the front end. So year over year over year over year, Albertans have been paying more into the fund and their ergo have more that's attached to them. Now, when you heard the Prime Minister saying, oh, you can't, we're not going to let you. No, we have a contract. So in the grown-up world, when you sign something to your name, that we still have this thing called the judiciary process, it's legally recognized. It's not Hotel California rules, like where you can check out, but you can never leave. Actually, we can. And in this contract in particular, the way it's set up, it's not like equalization or transfer payments. We don't have to go in and negotiate every five or six years. We've signed a contract. The terms of that contract are, all we have to do is give notice. You can't shut us down from pulling it out if that's what Albertans want to do. What we committed to is to make sure that we go through this process, we get all the numbers on the table, so that Albertans, if you choose to do this, then you have everything in front of you to make an educated decision. It's not to break apart the country, it's not to do all those types of things. Now what's taken place since all that fluffle and rhetoric and everything else, the uh, ministers have sent a letter back to our minister Horner and said, hey, we want to talk about the pension plan. 
And he wrote a letter back basically saying, yeah, great idea. Why don't we talk about the carbon tax? Why don't we talk about transfer payments? Why don't we talk about equalization payments while we're at it? Oh, and by the way, the meeting will be held in Calgary. Come on out west. It's great. So he's had that meeting with them right now. The feds are obviously understanding the rules. They're going back now and they're going to perform their own actuary. So they're going to do their own accounting function, look at what they have and come up with a number. What we'll do is we'll have that conversation in between. Worst case scenario, if we can't agree on a number, then the courts can decide on what a fair number is. The only reason why we're having a conversation now nationally about the carbon tax and where it should be applied and the hypocrisy of it all is because we started that conversation with the Alberta Pension Plan. It's the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. They've been making the rules up for years with our own gold. This is why we're at the table. We want to make sure their Albertans know full well what they're entitled to. And moreover, the rest of the provinces are recognizing that as well. They know Alberta has a position. So this is literally pulling it to that point. The other myths I'd love to dispel out there is that um, we're gambling. There is no gambling in this. The pension plan is 100% backstop by taxpayers anyway. So that's the first one. The second one is we get to choose who manages these funds. The same group that's managing it right now today could still manage it on our behalf. We literally just tell them instead of licking the stamp and sending it to Ottawa, why don't you report directly to us because here's our cash, we cashed out, you manage it for us. Life goes on and we save about $5 billion a year when we do that. Not a bad deal. We do have other options, whether we want to use an existing uh, entity that's out here to manage or build a whole brand new one. And you have to understand as well, when folks keep comparing us to Norway and the sovereign fund and, and everything else, it's not quite the same. You're talking a province to a, to a country and there's a lot of different rules, but this is the closest thing that we have to it. So anyone who's talking about the sovereign wealth fund in, in uh, Norway kind of understands the order of magnitude. Like we're talking billions of dollars here, folks. 330 some odd billion, 334 I think the number was, billions of dollars and with that to manage that type of, of equity or to manage that type of fund, there's a ton of people that are involved in that and potentially those jobs would be Albertan jobs to be had. And also folks around the world, other jurisdictions pay attention when you got that type of gold. So it's a great conversation to have in that regard. Uh, mentioned that we're going to do these what matters to you items on a weekly basis. Trying to flange that up in, in our offices. If you have, again, any people that you think are really cool or interesting people, send them my way. We want to have those conversations, get to know their stories, and quite frankly, carry the flag. Everything I've noticed in any of these conferences that we go to, it's literally by having your elected representatives there waving that Alberta flag, we get to tell our story. And it's a great story to be had. When I was in Germany um, and sitting with one of the Green Party leaders, actually the Green Party leader over supper, and we were talking about the energy file back and forth, she wasn't aware of what we were doing with hydrogen. She wasn't aware of, of what we were doing on the environmental side. She wasn't aware of how much coal that we had. And over there it's lignite, so it's, it's brown coal is what they call it. And over here we have tons of metallurgical coal. We have all the other thermal coals that they would back in the day give their hind teeth for. The, she wasn't aware that our number one polluter over here is actually forest fires. She wasn't aware of the size of the forest that we have, you know, and I'd put it in context that we burnt down Switzerland this summer and life still carries on because we're still over 60% forested. They had no idea in these items. And when it comes to trade items, you know, when they're accepting it, they have to understand the size of it. When I put it in context to her that it took me about seven and a half hours to get to Germany. Four and a half hours of it was to get out of my own country flying in the air. And that was the short way. 
another hour is over top of Greenland, and then we had a couple hours over the ocean, and once we hit the shoreline of Europe, it was only an hour. So the size of things, they, they don't necessarily appreciate offhand too. And when I said that we were the fourth largest known producing uh, oil grounds in the world, globally, we're, we're the fourth largest known producer right now. That when the U.S. gets their energy imports, 60% of which comes from Canada, well over 50% of that comes directly from Alberta on the oil side. When the U.S. is getting their imported gas, 99% of it comes from Alberta. When I told her that we have over 223 trillion cubic feet of gas, she was unaware of that. That we were only number two to Russia in the world for producing hydrogen, she was unaware of that. And when I put it in context that my province was twice the size of her country with only eight and a half million people, when we're sitting on literally thousands of years of conventional energy right now, and we are leading on the tech side, we are doing all these things with hydrogen, she was astounded by what we had. Telling our story and sending that message out to the rest of the world is not a bad thing. And the only way you can do that is by having your folks out there you're elected, in my opinion, representing us and doing that, doing the job that we need to do. And because of those conversations through the Consulate Corps and others and through those CSG groups, we're literally opening that up. And that was really exciting this week. So here's a couple not so exciting things, but I wanna tell you which bills we just put in through the House. So bill one was the Alberta Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act. So again, this one is basically saying no new taxes, uh, corporate or personal, unless we go to a referendum. That's right. Read my lips. You know, I think it was one of the presidents that said that. But Bill 1 is the Alberta Taxpayer Protection Amendment Act. That makes sure that we cannot change any taxes unless it goes to a referendum and Albertans take care of that. Number two is the Bill 2, the Alberta Pension Protection Act. So again, understanding there was lots of concern and churn out there about what would happen with people's funds and everything else. This basically says uh, we will not make Albertans contribute anymore than what they currently are on the CPP. This locks it in place. We will not allow anything to increase your rates or anything the likes. So again, um, we've got $334 billion of asset transfer from doing the actuary. $5 billion per year is what we save just by moving it over to the filing cabinet. And they report directly to us. And the fact that you'll never pay more than what you are now, and in fact, you figure out what you can do with that windfall. Either folks are paying less in the contributions or they're getting more on the outside that can potentially offset, especially for our seniors, some, some of the uh, items that we have right now driving inflation and otherwise. Um, so again, we're locking that into law. Uh, Bill 4, the statutes, the Tax Statutes Amendment Act. There's a, a number of items on here that um, touch on provincial fuel tax to make sure that we keep that off, that the that stays on. Uh, so we can give you back. And again, we don't control the carbon tax, but we have the road tax. And we want to make sure that that carries on to try to help with the affordability. And the easiest thing for the other group to do would be to ask the tax on that side. Uh, we were talking about some of the tourism items. Uh, there's a few different ones in here, but basically it's cleaning up some of the tax acts, working on the affordability file, trying to do that. Uh, Bill 5, the Public Sector uh, Amendment Act. Uh, that one hasn't been read in yet, but will be coming soon. We have uh, Bill 6, the Public Health Amendment Act. So this is to ensure that decisions made during declared states of public health emergencies uh, are made by people the Albertans voted for. If passed, Bill 6 would create clear lines of authority related to public health decisions and affirm that people elected by Albertans 
should make the final decisions based on scientific and medical public health factors during public health situations. So again, making sure that you're elected, who you put there, lessons learned from what we went through can actually um, drive the bus because there's a lot of things to consider when you have that type of provincial or pandemic health emergency that are more than just what the original act was intended for to be kind of isolated. So again, when you're having those major impacts, both socioeconomical and trade, there has to be your elected representatives to be able to weigh in on that. Uh, Bill 7, the Engineering and Geoscience Professions Amendment Act. So this is literally to allow one group uh, in the tech sector to use the word software engineer. So this might be a bit contentious for all the folks that have the rings on the fingers and the technical folks. It wasn't meant to be that at all, so it shouldn't be a bone of contention. So what we're looking at doing is there's a very commonly used term out in the industry of software engineer. What's happening is that when folks are applying for jobs out here and they can't use their credentialing that are in other areas, um, it's an impediment. So we want to make sure that tech sector can grow. We want to make sure that's coming forward. And it's very clear that this is the context of it, that they're not engineering, engineering, they're software engineering. And here's how it applies. So that'll be coming through as well. Bill 8, um, the Justice Statutes Amendment Act. Yeah, so this one is Alberta's government uh, has introduced this act to make it easier for Albertans to access important services and ensure legislation is up to date. So essentially with that one, uh, it's just introduced in the House. None of these are passed yet. The method for that is you introduce it in the House under the first reading. The second reading, you start to talk about the bill. Third reading is when you get into the Committee of the Whole, and that's where you put most of the amendments and you work it back and forth between the opposition, you hammer up the details. And then the fourth reading is literally going through the house at that point. So these, most of these are in their first or the second readings. We're just starting to get into the meat and potatoes of it and look forward to carrying forward. This is probably the most boring episode of What Matters to You you'll ever see, but a little bit of housekeeping, really excited about being back in the house, really excited about the things that we have on uh, the dial. Very fortunate and blessed again to represent the good folks out in Laxon and Parkland. And uh, stay tuned, Alberta's on the move. And look forward to moving, uh, moving things forward together with you. And as always, reach out to our office or through this uh, podcast feed. We want to keep connected and all those ideas fresh. And uh, make sure that Alberta stays strong and free. Take care. Waking up the buzzard on an old black county road. We're just rolling. Cold.